The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. They love praising God, body and soul, and I think we can learn from other churches, we can learn from other cultures. Maybe some of us wouldn't dare to mutter amen or, or move a muscle or make a facial expression when we're in church. And you may not be comfortable with clapping and, and shouting, but it is biblical to say amen. It's, it's good to smile. It's, it's good to be moved in some way to, to nod or, or to raise a hand or at least raise your voice in song. But we're not in danger of, of getting too wild here. <laughs> but there is a danger in all seriousness, there is a danger in being too comfortable and too formal. And we need to remember, we are not in a funeral here. Our, our Savior is alive. Amen? We have a living Savior, and we need to let people know that. We, we need to live like that. We need to sing like Jesus is alive. We need to love each other more in our loving Savior. And the brethren there send their greetings. I, I met someone who was sitting just two rows in front of us uh, who helped start the Compassion for Congo ministry uh, with, with DDA and, and Bob Wheatley years ago. And their church has supported that mission. And when we introduced ourselves, uh, they, they clapped to hear that our, our kids were from that mission. And it's good to same family. That was one of the things I was reminded of. And I was also reminded of Exodus, the... The story of Moses and Exodus has long resonated with African-American churches in particular. Some of you know the old spiritual, go down Moses. I was looking at those words again because they fit with where we are in the story. When Israel was in Egypt land, oppressed so hard they could stand. Down Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Thus saith the Lord, old Moses said, If not, I'll smite your firstborn dead. Let my people go. And one of the versions has this line, Tell all pharaohs, let my people go. I wish I could sing it like some can. But that's the context of Exodus 5. And I, I was reading this week also of a, a black pastor in the 1800s as the slave trade ended. Absalom Jones preached a sermon that I read that really sets up our context today. He's, he's preaching from where Exodus 3 and 4, Israel had their afflictions seen by God, and God heard their cry, God knew their sorrow, and God said he was going to come down to, to deliver them. He was going to come all the way down to Egypt land. He was going to be the one who would let them go. Here's how the sermon began. These words, my brethren, contain a short account of some of the circumstances which proceed the deliverance of the children of Israel from their captivity and bondage in Egypt. These words mention in the first place their affliction. Their work was of a laborious kind of making bricks. Any deficiency in their labor was punished by beating. And remember, their sons had been dragged from the arms of their mothers in chapter 1 and were put to death by drowning. by the God of their fathers and the father of the human race. His eye and ear were constantly open to their complaint. Every tear they shed 
was preserved. Every groan they uttered was recorded in order to testify at a future day against their oppressors. But our text goes further. He's talking about Exodus 3, 7 through 8. It describes the judge of the world being so much moved with what he saw and with what he heard that he rises from his throne not to command the armies of angels, but to come down himself from heaven in his own person in order to deliver them. The God of heaven is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has seen the affliction of our countrymen with an eye of pity. He has seen the wicked wars among the different tribes of the Africans, capturing their own, selling them for slaves, trinkets for bodies and souls. He's seen the anguish which has taken place when parents were torn from their children and children from their parents and conveyed with their hands and feet bound in fetters on ships prepared to receive them. He's seen them thrust into the the holds of those ships where many perish for lack of air. He's seen them exposed for sale like horses and cattle. He's seen all the different modes of torture by the means of the whip, the screw, the pinchers, and the red-hot iron. He says, Inhuman wretches, though you have been deaf to their cries and shrieks, they have been heard in heaven. He has heard the prayers that have ascended from the hearts of this people. And he has, as in the case of the ancient and chosen people, the Jews, he has come down to deliver our suffering countrymen from the hands of their oppressors. He came down into the United States. Glory to God, he says. We thank you, God, that you are no respecter of persons and that you have made from one blood all nations of men. And so he says, in light of this, let us give thanks to the Lord. Let us call upon his name. Amen. As Exodus 4 ends, the slaves hear of their emancipation, and they respond in worship. And in Exodus 5, the name of the Lord is going to be proclaimed to the slave master of Egypt. But like in America, the proclamation to let the people go didn't, it didn't immediately change reality, but there would be a big struggle still. The order to let the slaves go was defied. A hard heart won't let go of its hate. That's one of the things we'll see in the story. That kind of heart doesn't know the Lord. And so look with me at our text in Exodus 5. It was read earlier, but I want to reread verses 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let the people go, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. The title of this message is Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? It's the question of questions. Who is the Lord. And it's asked in three ways in this passage. And so for the first part of our message, we'll see how Pharaoh asked this question in defiance. And then we're going to see also in this passage, Israel and their discouragements are going to wonder who the Lord is. And then we're going to see who the Lord is in his deliverance. But I want you to imagine if you got a five-minute appointment with a ruler of this world, governor, president, world ruler. As I mentioned before, imagine you go to North Korea, you have an audience with Kim Jong-un, you got five minutes, and the first thing you say is, 
Kim Jong-un, God says, let your people go from the labor camps. Or imagine if you were to say to the Chinese government, the God you deny says, let his people go and worship freely without you imposing upon them. Let the people of Taiwan worship and live freely. Or Palestinian authority. The king of the Jews says to you that he owns this land and and he wants his people to be able to worship freely on this land. Or Saudi Arabian king. This is what King Jesus says, the king of the Jews. Let his church worship freely. Let them go. Or President Biden, the commander-in-chief of the universe, says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder life in these little ones. Or Governor Newsom, the the Lord says, let them go to school without anti-God, anti-family teaching. Or Mr. Academic Elite, there is one true God who created the world in six days and everything. This is what he says. Or Mr. Media Elite, thus says the Lord, that sexualized, racialized, liberalized worldview you have needs to go. Or say to the world, you're wrong. Attention world, you are wrong. The creator of marriage and gender defines it in his word, and you are all wrong. If you were to speak like that, you can imagine the powers that be that claim tolerance would very quickly turn to defiance against God's word. This passage begins with a challenge and a question of who is in control, who has the authority to speak on these things. And it's a conflict that still rages. Psalm 2 says the the nations rage. Why do they rage against the Lord? They gather together thinking they can throw off the bonds and the, the yokes that they can do it their way. Job 36 describes a king ready for battle, hand against God, defiantly against the Almighty. That's what the king of Egypt is doing here. He is raising his puny fist against the Almighty and saying, Who is this Lord? I don't know this Lord. And here's how one writer sums up his defiance in verse 2. Pharaoh asks a question to which the rest of chapters 5 through 15 will be the answer. Who is the Lord is not, not just a question. He's, he's putting down the gauntlet, if you will. It's a defiant response that's the, the context theologically for this section. The rest of the Exodus story is the answer to Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? That question is going to be answered in this story. This whole book could be entitled, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh. Yahweh is the word for Lord here. When it's in all capital letters, it's the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's not just a title, it's his actual name. I do not know Yahweh means I don't have a relationship with Yahweh and I don't recognize the authority of Yahweh. This is my territory, Pharaoh's saying. And and some of the context that helps us understand what he's thinking is The pharaohs actually saw themselves as gods. They saw themselves as lords, as in charge, that they were to be obeyed. Pharaoh saw Israel as my people. That's what he would have called them. These are my people. And now he hears 
this Lord God of Israel commanding Pharaoh to obey God and claiming that these people belong to this God and, and that, that they, they are under his lordship and his higher authority. Who is this Lord that I should obey, that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. He's defying the Lord, but he's also denying the Lord. He is throwing down. And there's going to be a showdown. And it's going to show who is sovereign in this story. But here's what one prime minister of Egypt wrote right around the traditional time, date of the Exodus. This is how Pharaoh was understood. What is the king of Upper and Lower Egypt? He is a God by whose dealing one lives. He is the father of all men. He is alone by himself without an equal. This is probably the prime minister at the time of this Pharaoh who said this. And yet we hear in Exodus 4, God is the father of Israel. They are his son, his firstborn son. And you need to let my son go so he can worship me. And here's how a different leader spoke to Pharaoh. So when you would come and speak to Pharaoh, how did that normally look like? We have this record of the ancient ruler of Gezer coming, or Gezer coming to Pharaoh. Here's how he approached so within the time frame of this message of Yahweh to Pharaoh, we have this other message that says, message of Yapahu, your, your servant, he says to Pharaoh, the dirt at your feet, that's what I am. I indeed prostrate myself at the feet of the king, my Lord, my God, seven times on the stomach, seven times on the back. I come to you, who am I, a dog, and what is my house? What is anything that I have that the orders of the king, my Lord, I should not obey Constantly. This is what Pharaoh was used to. And this king hears someone say, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Yahweh, let my people go. He says, Who is this Lord? Who is this that he thinks he can come in here and speak to me this way? That I should obey his voice. And when Moses and Aaron came, it doesn't say they came at the king's face feet or on their face. They, they didn't come with flattery. They didn't come with false humility. There's no prostrating themselves, no groveling, no bowing, just a bold, thus says the Lord God of Israel. And the implication with that language is, you're not Lord. You're not God. Now verse 3 is not disrespectful and it's also not unreasonable when they ask for three days to meet with the God of the Hebrews to sacrifice to him. And, and we have some ancient records also where the pharaohs would give days off for worship to their slaves to go worship their deities. But even if they ask nicely, Pharaoh answers defiantly. And verse 4 ends with, Get back to your burdens. What are you doing, Moses and Aaron? You're taking the people away. Get back to your burdens. In verse 4, Pharaoh is not reasonable at all. And I think that's one of the points. He's disrespectful to the Lord. The Lord is going to judge Egypt. The Lord is going to take out Israel permanently. 
He initially asked for a three days journey, but I think to show that even that he would not grant, and God's going to take them out permanently, that had always been his plan. Pharaoh's not going to sacrifice his workforce. He's not going to give any of them a Sabbath rest. In fact, look at verse 5. Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. That's the root word for Sabbath. The rest that God would give to Israel in days off. Pharaoh's not going to give any Sabbaths. And he's not going to give any straw. In verses 6 through 8, I'll read that part in, in the second point. But this also sets up how in Exodus 20, this Sabbath rest is a gift to Israel, to servants, to foreigners, and even to their beasts of burden. But the Egyptian king thinks he's the sovereign master. He thinks he's in charge. He thinks he owns Israel. And so he says in verse 9, Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. He's calling God a liar. Don't let them listen to those lies. And he's also saying to Israel, I'll I'll show you who's boss. I'll show you who's Lord. He, He, in verse 10, denies the Lord's authority. He defies the Lord's authority, and he applies it to himself. Look at verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. You recognize that wording? Using the exact phrase, he decrees in defiance of the divine decree, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. He's having his henchmen say, thus says Pharaoh. And the implication is, I'm the real Lord. I'm the real God of Israel. I will not give you time off. I will not give you straw. I'll give you work, not worship. You ask if you can go. I'll have you go, but not for that. Verse 11, go and get your straw yourselves. You want to go? Go get straw. Go get it yourself. In other words, I'll let you you go, all right, your people go. Go and slave even harder. I give the commands to go, he's saying, not your Hebrew God. I'm the Lord to be obeyed. You're just lazy slaves. You're just looking for a want-to-get-away deal. A trip. Verse 17. But he said, you are idle or lazy. Idle, lazy. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. Those are the same verbs from chapter 4, verse 23. Tell Pharaoh, say, tell Pharaoh, Let my son go, that he may serve me. The Lord says that. Pharaoh is defying that and basically saying, who's your daddy? Who's in charge? I am. You go and serve me alone, you lazy slaves. You work for me. And that word for work even can be used, some of these related words can be used for worship later. And there's a reminder even before we move from this first point that work is not to take the place of worship. Your job should never take the place of Jesus in your life. And maybe someone here needs to hear that. Your job sh- should never take the place of Jesus in your life. Don't let what you do become your identity or become your idol. That can happen for believers even. I think we all need to ask the question, who is my Lord? If 
functionally? Who, what is it that rules me? There's a lot of things that can rule us. It can be what other people think. It can be money, success. It can be approval. There's a lot of things that can rule us that aren't the Lord. We don't serve Pharaoh today, thankfully. But do you serve your flesh over your father? Where do you serve your flesh or continually obey desires that are contrary to what your master says? In the New Testament, it talks about when we continually give ourselves in obedience to other things, they, be, they can become our master. We're not to let anything else be our master but the Lord. Where do you act like you're in charge? Or that you can be in control. Where do you act like you're God would be another way to ask that. Act like you are God. Pharaoh said, I do not know the Lord. Do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord in a relationship? Do you recognize his authority over your life? If not, if you don't know him in a personal saving way, obey his voice, obey his voice that calls you to repent, to turn from your sin, to let your sin go. Obey his voice. Today, as you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like Pharaoh did. He's in defiance. But we don't want to stay there, do we? We've got to keep moving. But for Israel, there would be discouragements. Israel's going to wonder who the Lord is in their trials when it doesn't make sense. At the end of chapter 4, they, they believe the Lord had seen them in their afflictions, that he had visited them. But in Exodus 5, they haven't seen any change. Except what they do see is it seems like the affliction's getting worse. And they're now going to be visited with more beatings than ever before. So look at verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. So in the past, the workers were given resources. They're there standing at their station making bricks and the straw and the supplies are being given, but that's not going to happen anymore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them and by no means reduce it. Verse 12, so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. They've got to just find whatever they can, some stubble that could be like straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. These foremen were Jewish and so now even the higher level slaves are being beaten daily by these slave drivers. And we have paintings of, of brick making. This, this was a, a big thing in, in ancient Egypt. We know, and there were slaves, and, and there's paintings of slaves from the land of, of Canaan where Israel came working on building slaves. This is a, a tomb of around the time of the Exodus, one of the prime minister, Rechmeyer, shows brick-making slaves from Canaan. That would be modern Israel. They were mostly naked in the sun. They had these molds for their mud, and, and then they would the, the straw was a binding agent. 
And there would be men beating them with sticks. Some of the paintings show them with the, the whip or the stick raised, ready to just beat them. And these bricks were the literal building block of Egypt. So homes, buildings, some of the 60-foot tall walls that they would build, and, and the, the pyramids were made out of bricks. One of the pyramids had 24 million plus bricks in that one tomb for a pharaoh. And we also have what Egyptians thought of these brick makers. Here's one of their writings of the time. A brick maker is dirtier than pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His sides ache. His arms are destroyed. And he washes himself only once a season. He is simply wretched through and through. He is miserable. This is how it was before this new order now, where now you've got to go gather the straw. And there's consequences if you don't produce your quota. So now the job is it's sinking lower like, like quicksand, like there's a, a load of bricks piled on them now. It's gone from bad to worse. This is the last straw. I wondered if that phrase even came from this kind of story. They're not going to last without their straw supply. J.R.R. Tolkien called this sort of thing out of the frying pan into the fire. That's, that's one of the chapters in his book when the hobbit um, Bilbo and his friends go from one peril to a predicament that's, that's even worse. They, they were in, in the frying pan, if you will, of the wolves trying to eat them, and, and now they're in these trees, but the they're, these goblins are trying to burn them out of these trees, and smoke was in Bilbo's eyes. He could feel the heat of the flames, but then they were rescued, and they were rescued on eagle's wings, if you know that story or have seen that. Israel can feel the heat here, and it won't be till later that God will save them, and the way he describes it is he rescued them on eagle's wings and, and brought them out of this situation. That's chapter 19. But chapter 5 looks like a no-win, no-hope situation. They're being beat for quotas that are impossible to meet. And they, and they think this is, this is the end. We're going to die. And the issue is not making bricks without straw. Sometimes maybe you've heard it explained that way. They would not be so foolish as to have them make bricks that would be weaker so their buildings would collapse they're not making bricks without straw. It's, they're going to make those same bricks without the straw provided in advance by Egypt. You need to make those bricks with straw, and you have to find whatever you can for straw. And no extra time. One pastor I know called this section, the straw that broke the nation's back. I think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, this was physically... Backbreaking work already, but this is what broke their spirit. In fact, in the next chapter, it's going to say, even as they hear the words of the Lord, they couldn't hear because they were broken in their spirit. This broke them, broke them so much it was hard for them even to hear the word that would come, even with the miracles. And we read this chapter, but let me just summarize it. They appeal to Pharaoh, but he doubles down. 
You might say he, he triples down. In verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, this is what the people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? This is bad. Israel is wishing bad on Moses and Aaron. And Moses talks to God and blames God for doing bad to his people. And this is a bad plan. It's like I knew this was a bad plan from the start. Sounds kind of like Jonah later. But this is this is serious you can understand the struggle of the people and, and Moses and, and Moses and Israel are not disbelieving God here they're not disbelieving God's existence but they're utterly demoralized by the evil that exists and they don't see God acting and so they're calling on God to act and Israel thinks that Egypt now has the weapon to kill off all the Jews thanks to Moses This is going to be Pharaoh's final solution for this Jewish problem. He's going to kill us. There's there's no way out of this situation. There's no way we can see. You said God was going to deliver us. We haven't seen anything. Moses feels the same way. It's not just Israel. This is Moses. This is what he says. So Israel shoots the messenger verbally, Moses, and they they think the, the messenger, Moses, actually wants them dead or maybe he's just been wrong about this whole thing they'd heard that Yahweh had looked on them that that made them that gave them some hope in verse 21 though they call Yahweh to look on Moses now in judgment this is what discouragement can do discouragement can tempt us to quit we want to throw in the towel It makes us think it's all over. We can't see possibly any good thing happening. Discouragement can make us blame and turn against people who are trying to help us. I've seen that happen many times. And in discouragement, frustration can turn to accusation. And this is, even with Moses, this is how he's thinking and speaking to God now. Verse 23, Moses says, For since I came to Pharaoh... To speak in your name. He has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. We can feel that way. I mean, I mean we know where this story is going. But we're not in this moment. We can feel this way with far lesser discouragements. We can try to tell God what to do. We can try to do what God tells us to do. And it gets worse. Not better. We're trying to follow him, and it it seems like things are getting worse, not better. We may do what's right. Everything seems to be going wrong. 
We may try to do a good thing, but we see evil. We try to figure out what, what is going on here. This isn't how it's supposed to be, we think, even though this is often how it was for far greater believers than us in Bible times. But we see God's not delivering from a situation, and he doesn't seem to be doing anything about it, and we ask, why? Why is a baby, instead of being delivered, miscarried? And these believing hearts are broken. Why? Why is this one we love not delivered from a physical disease? Or maybe you've prayed and it seems like the prognosis is, is worse. Or, or why you might wonder, why am I not being delivered from this trial? Haven't I learned whatever you would want me to learn? Lord, what is it you want? What's happening here? Or we see a life that's lost that we know God could have delivered. Or maybe a family member lost in their sin. Maybe it's a loss of employment for you, maybe a loss of stability or ability that you used to have, you could be tempted to doubt. We all can. Maybe there's a life-altering event, or, or maybe it's, it's a long-term thing for you, a long-term discouragement that just doesn't seem to lift and just seems to keep coming back, and you wonder why. Discouragement wonders, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? It, is it true the things that I've believed about him? And why doesn't it make sense? This text doesn't answer those questions. It doesn't take away the pain or take away the trial in this chapter. But there are takeaways here for us. And one is that God is at work when you don't see him doing anything. This Verse 23 is setting the stage for chapter 6 and following. But often we want to see deliverance. We want instant deliverance. What God often wants for his people is for them to learn dependence on him, which is a, not a quick fix. It's not an instant thing usually. Sometimes God acts instantly, but often he wants us to grow in, in trusting him and to know that God's ways and timing are not man's. Don't judge his care by your calendar. Don't judge his care by your timetable of what you think it should be. He is there. He cares. That's one of the great messages. He sees. He knows. We also see Moses being real and raw with God. But we're not to rely on our feelings. We're not to rely on our emotions. But it is better to turn to God and be real and raw. If men do turn against you, Moses had some wrong thoughts. I don't think any of us would recommend other people say it the way he did. He had some wrong thoughts, but it was not wrong for him to bring it to God. In fact, that's precisely the person that Abram, David, Jeremiah, the psalmist, and many would bring their thoughts and even their wrong thoughts to God. It's better to lament or even vent to God than anyone else. He can handle it. And again, believers throughout Bible times come to him. And we see this pattern of, of Moses 
who, who to his credit here is interceding for others. We're going to see this pattern of him interceding and then God intervening. But take it to the Lord in prayer. Don't take it out on others. This is a temptation when we're struggling. Take it out on a family member or someone else. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Have we trials or temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Amen. What a friend we have in Jesus. We can take all of that to him all of the time. We'll never find a friend so faithful as him. Moses learned that. And he later told discouraged Israel who the Lord is. This is Deuteronomy 31.8. He will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Moses saw all these times in his life where he was tempted to be discouraged. But he says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. He's with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you if you're his child. If you're discouraged by what men say or do, listen to Hebrews 12.3. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. This is Jesus. Consider Jesus. What all he endured and all the hatred and persecution and opposition against himself. Consider him lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. You need to look to Jesus. If you're tempted to be discouraged, you need to consider him. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Consider him, Hebrews 12 says, so that you won't be discouraged and lose heart. And Hebrews 12 also says sometimes we need to help Strengthen the weary and discouraged knees and hands and spirits around us. So that takes us from who the Lord is in discouragements to who the Lord is in deliverance. Exodus 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God's hand is going to compel this Pharaoh who says, I'll never let them go. He's going to be begging Yahweh to have mercy on him later in the story. He's going to be sending them out. They're going to send them out with riches before the Lord is done. There's going to be a strong hand and a strong arm against this man who thought he was strong, Pharaoh. And this is Yahweh speaking in in Hebrew, and he's going to address both the Hebrews and the Egyptians, and and we'll we'll get into chapter 6 more next time, but I just want to point out two verses because I want to answer these two questions. I don't want to leave us hanging with these two questions. Pharaoh asked defiantly, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey? Chapter 6, verse 1 says, he's about to find out. He's about to find out who this Lord is, who he says he does not know. And he's going to do it so that Egypt will know. God's going to do it so Egypt will know that who he is, and that the nations, the world is going to know who he is because of what's about to happen. God's people wondered in discouragement who the Lord is, why he hadn't delivered. This is verse 6 of chapter 6 now. Here's the answer. Say therefore to the people of Israel. So God knew what they were wondering and thinking and saying, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. 
And I will bring you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. This is the answer in deliverance here. Who is Yahweh? He says, I am Yahweh. I will deliver you. And verse 6 goes on, and I will redeem you. And this is, this is the first time that God has used this word redeem in Scripture. He's about to reveal himself in this way. It means to, to buy back and to bring back as his own, as his sons. He's going to redeem them. So, so who is this Lord? He is the deliverer and he is the redeemer. And he's going to redeem them in this story by the blood of the Lamb. I think many of you, most of you know that story. And, 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 but Moses is also going to write of the Messiah who would redeem them from the curse. And so this is bigger than Pharaoh and just physical liberation of an oppressed people. This is how God is going to work in salvation. This is how God does work in salvation. This becomes the paradigm and the picture of what salvation looks like that belongs to our God. So who is this Lord that his voice should be obeyed? The New Testament tells us Jesus is the Lord and the Savior. And John 3 says, whoever does not obey his voice, the wrath of God remains on him. But there is grace for all who will obey the command, obey his voice to repent and to believe the gospel. In Exodus 5, God hadn't redeemed But there is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. He's Jesus. He's God's own Son. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one in Exodus 6. Verse 6, He promises to take them out from their burdens. To take them out from their yoke. This is the, the same Lord who in the Gospels takes our burdens upon Himself. He bears our burdens and our sorrows. And He's the the, the arch opposite, the, the, the opposite and the answer to Egypt's king who gave no rest, King Jesus says to all who labor and are heavy laden, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, and it's rest for your souls. He says, take upon my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is Easy and my burden is light. He says, come to me. Come to me with your burdens. I'll give you rest. Learn from me. He is the Lord. We'll look at this redemption more in the future. But, but who is the Lord in deliverance? Verse 6 says, I will deliver you from slavery. Romans 6 says, though you were slaves to sin, you were delivered. He's using the same language from Exodus to describe we were slaves to sin. You were delivered. To obey him. Paul says at the end of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will, what? Who will deliver me? Or who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Who's going to deliver? He is the one. Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the Lord who delivers us. Who is the Lord? That's what Saul of Tarsus asked before he knew the Lord. He could say, I do not know this Lord Jesus they're talking about, but on the Damascus road, God meets him. And he says, who are you, Lord? And this is what he learned and wrote in Galatians. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come, Paul wrote. And he wrote, if we trust Jesus alone to save, God has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's another Exodus type picture. We're in this domain of darkness over here, but he not only delivers us, forgives our sins, he actually transfers us and we're now in the kingdom of Christ and his forever kingdom. And Peter adds, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly from temptations. That's 2 Peter 2, verse 4. It's a great encouragement. He delivers us not just from our sins, but from our temptations to sin. And so we can pray as Peter was taught, Lord, Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so as temptations to discouragement or disobedience come, remember who the Lord is and obey his voice. Who is the Lord? Do you know the Lord? He is the strong deliverer, and he is the redeemer. Amen? Let's pray to him. Our great and gracious Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your spirit that you sent, who works in our hearts. We thank you, our Father, that you gave us your Son, I pray that you would help all of us to be impacted and changed in some way from these truths, that we would think about them as we go from here. We pray this for the glorious Christ. Amen.